Look, I'm no expert, but it seems like a big year for reading. I mean, after all, millions of Americans have been stuck at home during a pandemic, and in the wake of Black Lives Matter protests, anti-racist books have been flying off the shelves of bookstores and libraries. And at a time where it seems like something major and something new seems to demand our attention every few days, there's something alluring about losing yourself in a book, whether as an escape or a way to better make sense of the world. For years, Carolyn Kellogg was the book editor of the Los Angeles Times. And then, after a visit to the Equal Justice Initiative's Legacy Museum and Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, she made the decision to pack up everything she had and move from L.A. to A.L. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today I am talking books with Carolyn Kellogg. We discuss what drew her from L.A. to the South. We discuss the role that news outlets play in shaping the conversation around books and reading. We talk about how this moment may be great for readers, but isn't necessarily great for authors. And she recommends a few books to read this summer. So let's all get on the same page with this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Carolyn Kellogg, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thank you for having me. So I believe it was 2018, you were working as the book editor for the Los Angeles Times, one of the uh, premier newspapers in the country, in the world, a coveted job, and you decided that you were going to quit that job in Los Angeles and move all the way to Montgomery, Alabama. What happened and why? I still haven't quite figured it out. There were like lots of different forces that conspired. One of them was this feeling that I was part of this journalism machine that was propping up some really bad things about our country, like Donald Trump. Like I couldn't go on a protest. I couldn't walk. I couldn't join a march. I couldn't sign a petition against Donald Trump. And I would sit in editorial meetings where people would not use words like racist to describe things that were clearly racist. And a lot of those constraints of being a journalist felt very heavily on me. I was only the book editor, right? Like at other institutions, I might've had a little more leeway, but where I was, they was still really uh, strict about it. So eventually I just decided that I should be a participant in the country and not just an observer of it. I don't know anybody in Alabama I visited the state with a friend whose son was going to rocket camp up in Huntsville. What's it yeah. called? Space, Space camp. camp. And we drove around the state. I was really inspired by EJI and the work that the Equal Justice Initiative is doing. And I don't know if you know this, but Alabama is really beautiful. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it said to me, come here, even though there was no person saying come here. Well, I want to come back to the journalism conversation in a minute. But my understanding is you had no personal ties to Alabama, though you do have some ties to the South. Yes, I was born in the Florida Panhandle. So so that's basically Alabama. We claim that as ours. <laughs> it's Florabama, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a word. But we moved away when I was three. Okay. My mom grew up outside of D.C. in Virginia. My dad grew up in Connecticut. So I felt like there were sort of these two halves of me. I grew up in New England. I spent a lot of my adult life in Los Angeles. And the Southern part, I just had kind of swept under the rug. And in some ways, I think that parallels sometimes how the greater narratives about America kind of bypass the South, either by othering it or by forgetting it until somebody does something really significant. Yeah, you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> 
on the conversation about journalism. So, you know, it sounded like you wanted to kind of get out of the trappings of journalist slash citizen that you, you wanted to be able to protest, speak your mind more directly. I mean, there there are certainly journalists who have done that and continue to do that for some outlets who publicly speak out about racism and the president. And we are seeing an increase in partisan media. Was there any interest in kind of pursuing something like that? Or did you want to kind of get out of the journalism game altogether? Well, I felt like I kind of needed a break. I had been at the LA Times for 10 years in one capacity or another. I'd been there for two years as a contributing writer for another five years as a staff writer. And it was in books, doing books and publishing, and then three years as books editor. And as books editor, I felt like I was able to kind of create a narrative within the stuff that I could assign and the way it was covered and who was given assignments so that I was doing good work. And I was really proud of that work. But the LA Times went through a number of changes. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure where the paper was going. And I also felt like it was up to me to make those choices. And I couldn't really wait for the paper to get its act together. Being away from journalism, I really miss it. Like I love the daily news grind. I love keeping on top of things. I love like sort of knowing how to follow the flow of a story. So I admire everybody who's still in it. It's a big decision. What did your friends think when you told them, well, I'm I'm moving to Montgomery, Alabama? I would imagine that that carries some baggage in LA that it wouldn't necessarily carry if I said I was moving to Montgomery. Oh, why, why is that? <laughs> well, I just think there's some coastal perspectives about Alabama that we might not have over here in Tuscaloosa or up in Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have asked the kind of questions that everybody asks, like, do you have family there? Like, do you have a secret fiance there? (laughs) (laughs) And none of those things were true, but they were the same kind of questions I got when I moved from New England to California. Mm -hmm. I moved from New England to Los Angeles. Everybody thought that Los Angeles was full of vapid bimbos um, and was not a place where anybody who liked books would go. And I think for the most part, Los Angeles has been able to kind of shake that reputation. And I saw all the good work that was happening across the South culturally, whether it was people like Southern Foodways or Bitter Southerner or or the liberal rednecks, uh, the comedians who have the podcast. And I looked at the numbers and it, it felt like the South was much more diverse and interesting than people would assume from the outside. And I thought, maybe I can learn a little bit about it. It would be nice to be in a place where I don't know anything. I know that sounds crazy. My friends were kind of crazy. I thought I could talk more people into coming to visit me when I moved because, you know, I have this great house. I've got a nice yard and I was doing very poorly on that. And then the coronavirus came. So, of course, nobody's visiting anybody ever. Yeah, you can't even visit your neighbors there in Montgomery. I mean, I guess now you can. Things are opening up a little bit, but other people could. I just don't know if it's sensible. Right. Especially in Montgomery, where we are still seeing rise in cases. And that's got to be kind of the shocker. At least you you do have a house that you like. But, you know, you move to the other side of the country. And, you know, if at some point doubt starts to set in, all of a sudden, nope, you can't you can't go anywhere. Well, on the one hand, you're absolutely right. It's hard to be in Alabama where a lot of people have really strong family ties and to not have that kind of local network of support. But on the other hand, One of the interesting things about this horrible pandemic is that for people who like books, like me, like sitting at home with a book is like, it just gives you an excuse to sit at home with a book. Sure. Well, and I know, I mean, just from looking at my friends on Goodreads, it certainly seems that 
a lot of people's reading habits, like you said, have gone up. I don't know that that's the case for everybody, because like for me, I think my reading habits have gone down. And I think it's because, I mean, a lot of my reading was done on audiobooks in my commute to and from Birmingham and Tuscaloosa. And so, you know, that's two hours a day that I kind of lost. But I've also found that like for me, kind of the work-life balance has been harder to adjust from sitting at my computer for eight hours a day and reading nothing but news all day. And then kind of the last thing that I'm able to do really is, is sit down and concentrate on a book for an hour or two. I've found that I can read on the weekends, but weeknights. Uh, and I don't know if that's the case for any of our other listeners out there, but it does seem that like it has increased some people's reading and decreased others. And for you, it's been a boon for reading, I would assume. Not necessarily. I mean, like, I also compulsively read the news, try to keep up on the tallies, worry about my friends in New York and Los Angeles, and then watch back episodes of HGTV shows on, <laughs> <laughs> on Hulu. Of course. And just like anybody else. <laughs> it's also interesting. I was talking with a friend in LA about this just this week, actually. Some of the perks of living in a big city like Los Angeles or New York are always like the kind of pop up entertainment experiences that you can go to and a lot of that stuff is gone right now and so you know you can't go over to the greek theater to watch a concert you can't go see upright citizens brigade and so we were kind of talking about like all of a sudden people in la and new york are stuck at home just like the rest of us it's kind of the leveler in terms of cultural access i guess uh, everything's online now well yeah exactly it is i'm really glad you mentioned that because one of the things that i have been able to do is sort of participate in that kind of cultural consumption from my computer here in montgomery so I watched a thing called Noir at the Bar, which is a bunch of contemporary noir writers talking about books. Usually at those events, they like read their books, but I watched one where they just talked about their books and they recommended a book by Ace Atkins, who I still haven't read yet, but that's a big Alabama writer. And mm -hmm. uh, I was never able to make it to those when I lived in LA because I was too busy or I would plan to go and then I'd get stuck at work like, and I couldn't make it across town, you know, but I watched the other day, I made myself lunch and then I watched a curator at the Frick doing cocktails at the Frick where a curator walks you through a single work of art in their collection in New York City, That's which cool. is ways that these cultural institutions are reaching out. So you can, there's so many great book events that you can participate in. Now, I think the Authors Guild hosted a thing that I didn't sign up for because I was afraid it cost money, but I think it was actually free and now is archived and online. And it's a conversation between Judy Bloom and Margaret Atwood they were going to be like honored at their big like fundraising dinner. And since that couldn't happen, they just did a free online event, which is super cool. Well, and that's another interesting thing that's happening, I guess, in the book industry and, and all industries that a lot of these conferences and award ceremonies, you know, the Pulitzers were online this year. A lot of these ceremonies are moving online. And that is opening up access to the rest of the world, I think, in a way that typically they've been kind of sequestered in the coast. Having moved from you know, New England to California and now to the Deep South. I've always kind of had the perspective kind of continuing in this conversation that the coastal papers are at this point sort of the gatekeepers of culture. There's not a whole lot of newspapers in the South at this point that can afford to have book editors. I know that there have been people that have filled in the gaps. Uh, Margaret Wrinkle in Tennessee has set up a great organization to do cultural coverage there. Has living here change your perspective on anything that you did while covering books with the Times? My attitude when I became editor was New York Times could have New York and I could have the rest of the country. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because they really like they sometimes the New York Times just spends way too much time 
writing reviews of books that are another coming of age novel set in Brooklyn of an unfulfilled white guy in Brooklyn. So I hope that I did a good job of covering that. I mean, coming here, I've, I've learned about some writers and their histories that I didn't know. So that is kind of cool. I do think, I mean, it's funny, I think that the big newspapers still do serve as kind of gatekeepers in that way, like Margaret Renkel has an opinion column at the New York Times, right? Mm -hmm. It helps to have one foot in and one foot out. And I sort of hope that one of the things that I could do as somebody who had been in Los Angeles was like maintain that split a little bit, like Mm -hmm. keep one foot in. I still write for the LA Times and I still write for the Washington Post. Does the Washington Post count as Southern or not? I would claim Washington, D.C. as a Southern city. There are some people that would say that it's not. I would go up as far north as Baltimore, at least. I don't know that I would claim the Washington Post as a Southern newspaper, though. I think that its coverage still frames from more of a coastal sensibility. But I will say that I think that their national coverage tends to be stronger than the New York Times recently. Stephanie McCrumman is from Alabama. She's a great reporter there for the Washington Post. I mean, there's some great reporters from Alabama with the New York Times as well, but I'm, they're easier to pick on, I guess, because they have New York in their name. But I definitely count Washington, D.C. as a southern city for sure. I mean, it's been, I feel sad because like, I remember when I was growing up that like creative loafing was in Atlanta, like there were alt weeklies and just the entire culture of the the whole news environment has just changed so much. The ecosystem has just gotten so much smaller. It seems like since I've been here, like the cultural coverage from Atlanta, both through Atlanta Magazine and yeah. the Atlanta Journal Constitution, like they both like they've been shrinking and shrinking. And now with COVID, like my friend is the book editor for the Tampa Bay Times. Like they're all shrinking coverage. So it's tough everywhere. Yeah, it's been a uh, particularly sobering time for the media industry. I mean, for all industries, but you know, it's been tough to see our colleagues on social media very publicly kind of losing their jobs and it being one of the few spaces where people actively cheer when they lose their jobs. Uh, that's been interesting. And the New York Times and the Washington Post seem to be weathering the storm fine, but it is kind of limiting coverage in the rest of the country in ways that we will probably feel more and more as we go on. What's happening like right at the moment now with COVID, it's just, it's so hard to sort of figure out what the future is going to look like sort of culturally for cultural events, for author interviews, for bookstores, for this whole publishing in all these different ways, as well as restaurants and (laughs) Yes, of course. And everything, our entire way of life. I have seen kind of conflicting reports about the publishing industry. I have seen that sales and I guess printings of physical books are up, but that new releases and things like that, a lot of those have been delayed. I guess that makes sense because, you know, more people are at home reading. Although I've also heard that Amazon is slower to deliver books than maybe some other products because they're not considered essential items. But a lot of authors might be delaying their books because they can't do things like book tours. What exactly is happening in the editing and publication industry right now, as far as you know? I know a little bit. So you're absolutely right. A lot of authors, book tours got pushed back. And, you know, only like really big authors like Neil Gaiman or David Sedaris or Margaret Atwood, maybe John Grisham, like make money off their book tours. Like most authors are going to a bookstore, talking to like 20 or 30 people, or even like 100 people, 
and they're maybe they're breaking even, but it's about building relationships. It's about like meeting readers face to face. It's about meeting the people in the bookstore who are going to go on to sell your book after you leave. Like you're not going to come back for a couple years, but they can sell your book for the next couple years. And so like not being able to do that affects authors, but it's not because like they would go broke from not doing the tours, but somebody like Roxane Gay, I think makes a lot of money from her appearances because she's so wildly popular. And so not being able to go out and do appearances, I think is really tough. Amazon did at one point in March say they were going to not ship books. They were going to ship basically everything else like diapers and masks and, you know, hand sanitizer. And of course they were, but they have like something like 70% of book sales, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. If your book, or if this book, which I was just revisiting today, if Abraham Kendi's book, How to Be a Racist, was coming out in like the last week of April of this year, and it got pushed back to September, that would partly be to allow it to get into people's hands because in right. April, they were afraid nobody could actually get it. That makes sense. I heard that the book sales numbers were in the hardcover book sales were up partly because so many people were doing schooling at home. That a lot of families had to get copies of books, of, especially like backlist books of like, you know, Tolstoy or whatever for your high school kids. Right. Books that they might otherwise have. I hadn't considered the ramifications of that. And I would imagine that, I mean, we talked a little bit about the impact on some of the authors and opportunity for lost income and, and the ability to kind of get their name out. That, but also a lot of the independent bookstores, I assume, are, are really struggling when people are staying at home and it's easier to order from an Amazon or a Books A Million than it might be for an independent bookstore who might not have yet set up a, a delivery system. There's a new thing called bookshop.org that was doing like fulfillment, like delivery for a lot of independent bookstores and giving them a bigger cut than Amazon. And at some point they did a press release this spring showing that in fact, they launched shortly before all of this stuff started. And they've been very effective at getting books out the door and getting money to independent bookstores. But still, it's not the same thing. I think a lot of really great independent bookstores, like the one in Birmingham. Alabama Booksmith. Yeah. Oh, no, I was thinking, oh, thank thinking you of, books. Thank you books. Oh, both of those are great. Yes. And uh, or thank you, Birmingham. But yeah, what makes them great is like you walk in and they have a sense of like the books are all kind of in conversation with each other in one yeah. way or another. So that if you like something on that shelf, you might like something on the shelf behind you. And bookstores actually like that's how they make their money is with browsing. And so it's just harder to get people to browse the same way on the Internet. Right. And that there's more of a human touch of those recommendations than an algorithm would provide, I would think. Yes, the algorithm is still much worse. I have to tell you, I'm a total partisan about Amazon. I think Amazon is terrible. I have not bought anything from them in years. And I don't use their streaming. I don't use their other products. I'm a huge evangelist for trying to go with independence outside of Amazon. Has that been harder as things get shut down? I mean, just in terms of what you can and can't get delivered to your house, has it been harder to avoid Amazon as they as they take over everything? Not at all. Sticking it's to your not guns. been hard at all. I'm sticking to it. It's like asking a vegetarian, would you like this freshly slaughtered chicken? No, no, I would not. Coming up after the break, Carolyn Kellogg shares her reading recommendations for the summer. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. As the novel coronavirus wreaks havoc in Alabama and across the world, 
These are the stories of the people seeking to survive the disease and its economic strain. I've been doing this 40 years. I bet I've fired five people in my entire life. And, you know, we're in the process of laying off hundreds of people. And I can tell you that's as tough as anything we've ever done. A lot of us don't have health insurance. A lot of us don't have sick days. You can't collect unemployment when shows cancel. Everyone is worried. Everyone is tense. Everyone is concerned. I have a business that I cannot even run. For two months now, I've been closed. I have five employees. They keep asking me when we're going to reopen, and I don't know yet. I'm an optimistic guy, and, and I think that my group is smart enough and hardworking enough and kind enough to get us through this, whatever they throw at us. And, and that's certainly my hope. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a Pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let's talk a little bit about books. It's the time of year where people are putting together their summer reading lists. Maybe people will continue to be spending time on the beach reading books. Maybe people will be spending time in their homes reading books. But what are some books that uh, are on your list of things that we should all be paying attention to? I think one of the interesting things is that people tend to read either for I mean, it's always for some kind of escape, right? Like when you open up the pages of a book, there's another world inside of it. Or if you pull it up on your phone. So, I mean, like often I judged the National Book Award in nonfiction last year. That was one of the five judges. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I was looking for in nonfiction was how does this book reflect on our contemporary world? Like nonfiction, there were 600 books. It included like historical biographies and stories about World War II. And I was interested in books that reflected on the world. And that muscle is very strong in me. So it's hard in the middle of a pandemic, like seeking books that reflect on the world because it just reflects back back all of that stress. Right. Well, I I know a lot of people kind of turn to like the book about the Spanish flu that a lot of people have been reading and then a lot of people have been watching the movie Contagion. And so there does seem to be like wanting to read that aspect of like how people got through the past. (laughs) I watched Contagion. You watched Contagion, yeah. (laughs) Again, I love that movie. It's very good. Or people are reading Camus' The Plague or are reading Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year, which is from the plague year. And as you've probably heard, you could go back to King Lear because supposedly Shakespeare wrote that while he was locked in. Right. And we're all supposed to be living up to that expectation. <laughs> so if, you're, if you haven't whipped out King Lear in the last two months, I'm sorry. Yeah, one of the books that I read that was both reflective of now, but came much before is a fiction book by Octavia Butler. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know her, but she's a science fiction writer who was the first science fiction writer to get a MacArthur Genius Award. She was this African-American lady from Pasadena, California, and or Altadena around there. And one of her books, I read two of her books for the first time. And this book, The Parable of the Sower, which is S-O-W-E-R, like seeds, not S-E-W, like masks, (laughs) Um, (laughs) is set in like 2027. She wrote it, I think, in the 90s. And it's about a society that is falling apart because of environmental devastation. So like too many fires, too much drought, it's set in California. But the real thing that causes society to fall apart is this division between rich and poor. And so like the middle class is just getting squeezed and squeezed. And there are like homeless bands, like drug dealers who have taken over the center city, like 
in the warriors. Mm -hmm. But if you lose your footing, if you lose your house, like there's no work and there, you can't afford the water and people end up homeless. And once they hit the road, they're can be easily victimized. And so this group of people, including this teen girl who is carrying seeds with her and is sort of inventing a religion as she goes, try to walk North to find a place to find water. And that sense of like being in a place as everything around you is falling apart and wondering like that felt like way too close sometimes. But it's really good. Yeah. Just wait a few more years and you can consider that for nonfiction awards also. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It was too close. So, okay. Some books that are coming up this summer that I know are coming up this summer. There's a memoir by Natasha Trethway, who was the U.S. Poet Laureate, and it's called Memorial Drive. And her stepfather murdered her mother. Wow. This is, I think, the first time she's writing about that in like a narrative nonfiction form. Mm-hmm. Yagiazi, who is from, uh, I think, was raised in Huntsville. That's right. Yeah. And I've read an advanced copy of her new book, and it's, it's terrific. I haven't read it yet. It's not a sequel to Homegoing, right? No, it is not. It's just another book. Yes, Transcendent Kingdom. It takes place partially in the Bay Area in California and partially in in the Huntsville area in in Alabama, but it is not a sequel to Homegoing. And it's sort of, it's about a PhD student who has to come home. Yeah, and it deals with a lot of issues that clearly still are impacting us in Alabama, you know, opioid addiction, the influence of religion, thought versus reason. Her mother comes to live with her briefly in California, and she's a PhD student who's studying the brain and kind of deals with the way that opioids affect the brain as well as, as religion affects the brain. I don't want to give too much away, but it's it's very good. Homegoing was also very good. I stole your thunder. You were about to talk about that book. No, uh, it's called The Transcendent Kingdom, right? And she is Ghanaian. Her parents moved to Alabama from Ghana. That's right. And that's the case for the character in the book as well. I don't want to say that it's autobiographical, but it's certainly a Ghanaian family that has moved to Huntsville. And then I think that Yah also lived in Berkeley for a while, may still live in Berkeley, but she does not study biology and chemistry as far as I know. But in some ways, isn't writing just a kind of study of the brain? (laughs) It might be. That's true. That's a fair point. (laughs) There's a book coming out that's a debut by this guy named Dave Hill that just looks really cool to me. It's called The Vapors. It's about, here's, I'll read you the subtitle, A Southern Family, The New York Mob, and The Rise and Fall of Hot Springs, America's Forgotten Capital of Vice. Oh, and it's about good. Hot Springs, Arkansas. Sounds kind of like uh, the TV show Ozark, which is also in that same general area. I think of it more like Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, like it's like early, too. early mob stuff before Vegas, like sort of got off the ground, I think. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good mashup. I'll check that one out for sure. And it's a great title, uh, The Vapors. The Vapors, yeah. And then I have been reading this book because um, I'm really interested in how we relate to the physical world. Like I try to garden, I'm terrible at it, but I really like doing it. And also, if you know what to do about uh, getting stung by fire ants, you should tell me because I'm clueless. Uh, you just have to kind of pray and give yourself over to the fact that it's always going to happen. <laughs> you just learn to live with it. <laughs> Thank you, Alabama. So there's this book called The Planter of Modern Life, and it's about Louis Bromfeld and the seeds of a food revolution. And that did come out in April in the sort of quiet time. And I'm like partway through it. He was a best-selling writer in the 1920s and moved to Paris and was like a 
cohort of like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Fitzgerald House right here in Montgomery. And uh, Hemingway and Gertrude Stein, he was like buddies with both Gertrude Stein and Edith Wharton. But he was kind of like the older, uncool guy because his books were selling really big at the time and they were all just like the sassy upstarts. And so he like has these fabulous parties and he buys a house and he falls in love with like the way that French farmers seem to have this sort of great ecosystem where they have like a garden and a little farms that are self-sustaining and seem to be different than the American model. So, but he also had lots of great parties apparently. Before World War II, he moves back to Ohio and I think starts trying to do organic farming there, but I haven't gotten that far. But it's kind of frustrating because he's just like rich and his version of gardening is like he pays a a guy he literally calls a peasant to go be a gardener. (laughs) And I'm like in my yard, you know, like sweating through my t-shirt because it's already 90 degrees here. Right. The haves and the have-nots. Trying to rip up the Confederate jasmine out of my garden. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the struggle against weeds and everything in our backyard and garden is very, very real right now. I think that there's, for me, there like I love the idea that somebody who can be bookish can also care about the natural world. And that's why I was sort of very hopeful about that book. Great. Well, those all sound terrific. And hopefully people can go to bookshop.org and buy those. Or go to your local independent bookstore's website. And if you buy a book from them, it'll get shopped through Bookshop. You don't even have to go to bookshop.org. One more, David Mitchell's uh, Utopia Avenue is coming out in July. And what's that one about? It's apparently like sort of like a 60s rock band thing, but David Mitchell wrote Cloud Atlas. Oh yeah, great. And uh, a best book with the worst movie made from it, I think ever in the history of books and movies. That's a tall order. (laughs) It's really, have you ever seen the movie? I I have. It was not a good movie. I'm inclined to agree with you. Well, what else is keeping you occupied these days? What are you looking forward to as the summer in Alabama sets in? I'm hoping that some of the things that I planted will grow. Yes. And I'm hoping to keep doing a ton of reading and to be able to focus on the reading. I actually really liked being able to go to the big city, like to go up to New York. I was supposed to go to New York in the second week of March and Mm -hmm. that trip got canceled. And I was supposed to go to LA in the second week of April and that trip got canceled. And so I really miss the chances to, you know, get a taco from a truck and see my friends face to face. But On the flip side, it just means that I can be more conscientious about doing Zoom happy hours. Yeah, of course. I feel like I should have something more than that, but like staying home, not going to the Alabama beaches, not going to any Alabama parks. I mean, there's so many things about Alabama I'm really curious about and excited about. Like, I love the mounds. Like, I think the Alabama mounds are so cool. It's one of those things that nobody ever talked about in California, like uh, when people are talking about Native American history. And so I wanted to explore them and I'd been to a couple of them before we shut down. And so like, that's just a list that's going to have to wait. Well, I hope that you were able to uh, to do some of these things at some point and hopefully uh, people will find you on Twitter at at paperhouse, H-A-U-S and give you some recommendations for things to do in Alabama. Yeah, tell me what I should do in Alabama when I'm allowed to go do things in Alabama. And if you have a secret uh, for battling fire ants, let me know. Yes, if I find out, I will let you know as well. Well, thanks so much, and we look forward to talking to you again. Thanks for having me. And that's all the time we have this week, folks. Thank you to Carolyn Kellogg for her time. You can find her on Twitter at at paperhouse, P-A-P-E-R-H-A-U-S. 
This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It was produced and edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like our show, please consider subscribing, sharing with your friends, and giving us a five-star review. And go follow Reckon on all of our social channels. And until next time, thanks for listening.